from New York City, the city of ambition, aspiration, and desire, this is Populax with Fomai Sirdari. Populax is the place where we bring attention to objects of personal luxury, objects of desire, objects that have shaped our experience. Through Populax, I hope to bring to you all the fun and profound ways my guests, accomplished creatives from across ages, cultures, and professions, relate to one object of desire at a time. Lara Knutsen is a multidisciplinary fine artist, part industrial designer, and part architect, but mostly a poet who works with light. In today's episode, she will tell us about the epiphany she had as a young person and the natural phenomenon that led her to her creative path. Lara makes objects whose shapes are made of light. One of them, Soft Glass Basket is in the permanent collection of the Renwick Gallery at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. Let's ask Lara about her object of desire. My object of desire is light. Um, Particularly, I love how reflective surfaces play with light and kind of interact with you. So it could be anything from like a a glowing metal to a a gem, of course, to water glistening. And then to my favorite materials are reflective materials because they not only are magical and they glow, but they kind of respond. And so, for instance, if you walk around like an object that I've created with these materials, um, because of the ambient light around your, your cone of vision, these objects kind of look like they have a pulse and a heartbeat. I just found that this kind of reflective glass material is just really magical and otherworldly and something that I will spend the rest of my life exploring because I think it's just fascinating. I think what is interesting is the fact that you choose light, which for most people is something very difficult to define. But we shouldn't forget that light itself, other than it being energy, has a materiality that's very important. And the other aspect of it is, you know, this whole idea and the question that remains for a lot of scholars who examine luxury is where the word luxury comes from. And for for a group of scholars, not for everybody, has to do with loose light, that in essence, we all human beings are attracted our humanity makes us seek light, and, and that is a constant aspiration in, in, in how humanity evolved over the years, which is fascinating. Tell us a little bit how you came about it. I remember some beautiful stories from when I originally met you, which I went back to my notes And it's mind-boggling. It's already 10 years. And I met you at the Museum of Art and Design when you were doing the residency. Tell us a little bit about yourself 
and and how you came to work with light as a material? Well, when I met you, I was actually working with something that I had just filed a patent for. It was a discovery I made in the industrial design department at Pratt um, when I was getting my master's degree. And I figured out a way to make light look three-dimensional and I can create bubbles of light. So I um, was recently, last year, um, awarded my patent. And so I have a fully issued, you know, globally protected now utility patent. And um, so I can make spheres of light using uh, microspheres. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be glass, but it has to be something just because of physics, um, something spherical. But I'm basically making flat rainbows. So like the math behind it is it's the same thing as making a rainbow where the light is coming back at you at uh, relatively like 42 degrees. So it spreads out across the surface. And when you gather them together, they create like bubbles of light or um, actually clouds of light, I should say, um, where I can mix color and space. But I've actually been interested in reflective materials since, honestly, since 2000. I finished my master's degree or my undergrad degree in architecture in 99. And I um, was always listening to my professors because I had really good professors at Pratt. And one of them, Alan Wexler, who was one of my favorites. Do you know Alan Wexler? Yes. Yes. He's wonderful. Wonderful person, amazing artist, everything. So I remember him talking to our class and I'm totally paraphrasing this. Um, I guess this is my interest interpretation. Um, so, you know, we're all like 21 years old, right? And going out and getting jobs and everything and graduating. And I remember him saying, um, like, whatever you do, don't get caught up in a job and never stop doing your own thing. So he doesn't mean like, don't work hard in your job, but never lose sight of your own creativity. So I really understood what he meant. So like my nights and weekends after work, I was always experimenting with things. And um, my original obsession, I get obsessed with things. My original <laughs> obsession was mica. Yeah, so mica, because when I learned, when I, something interests me, I just need to learn everything about it. So mica is a, you know, a natural mineral that reflects light. And it's also like flame retardant. So I made a couple um, lamps and sculptures and different things out of that. And then one day I was sitting at this lunchtime seminar as an architect, you know, it's young 20 something architect. And this woman who was showing us this lighting was talking about glass microspheres in lighting to reflect light. And I was like, that's pretty interesting. And this is early Google days, but I went back to my desk and I started Googling microspheres. And then I discovered um, like 3M's reflective material. I contacted the rep and they sent me like an enormous box of samples. And then I started experimenting and I made sculptures and actually that is what is actually in the Renwick mm-hmm. is work from that time. And, you know, never in my wildest imagination when I started this rabbit hole of microspheres did I ever think that I'd have um, work in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian. Um, that is no small feat. Yes, this is <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Both in terms of, of the scientific experimentation, but also these beautiful forms that you created with your material. I think it's, it's, it's a combination of the two that makes that part really stunning. Thank you. So yeah, right now I, um, because of my patent that was just issued, which I am very grateful for, for so many reasons, 
I'm developing some really high-end lighting for a showroom in New York. Um, I've shown with them before and it will be good. So we're making bronze lighting that's coated with my 3D glass. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so, and the, the, the foundry I'm working with only does like fine art. And the quality is just amazing. So they're located in Philadelphia. So not only the ingredients are the tenets of luxury, right? This luminosity and the idea that you have managed to capture light. But in this particular case, the product that is coming out of this uh, collaboration is of the highest quality. I'm assuming high price as well. Yeah, they make like Simone Lee's and Kiki Smith's work. Oh, very nice. Good company. Yeah, so when you go into their factory or their foundry, you know, you just see this, you know, amazing, amazing work. And the owner is awesome. So I'm happy to be working with them. Because you have been so consistent in your fascination to learn everything about light, make it material, make it tangible. You actually have bridged a lot of disciplines. So, right. So, so you are an architect, you are a scientist when you're working with your materials, uh, the one that you got the patent on, and then you are also a product designer. So had you, I think I know the answer, but had you envisioned that you want to be that sort of multidisciplinary practitioner? Were you, as a young person, were you more thinking, what what drew you to architecture? I'm I'm very curious about that. So I I wanted to be an architect um, kind of my whole life in a way. Like I grew up around um, beach houses in New Jersey. And so I grew up just watching all these like cool houses being built. So I actually had, I don't know if it would be called like an epiphany, but like maybe like an awakening when I was 17. And I came home from tennis practice one day. And I guess because, you know, I was just this young tennis player, 17, you know, super skinny, you know, blondish, whatever. People didn't take me seriously. And I remember there was like this high school drafting teacher who I was told to go talk to from my guidance counselor. And I did. And he said, you know, oh, you want to be an architect? Can you even spell it? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And I remember thinking to myself, um, because I was always pretty headstrong. I, I remember thinking to myself, you teach drafting in a high school in South Jersey. Like, what do you know? Right. Like, that's what I thought immediately. It's like, whatever. You know, buzz off. Like I didn't, I didn't like talk back because I was, I knew better, but so I was riding my bike on, I grew up on Long Beach Island and I was riding my bike south. And I remember seeing, um, you know, the sky was amazing that in that moment. And I actually went back to this app called Sky Guide and I can recreate it. Like I, it's not an exaggeration. So it was like in September, 1992, you know, I'm only 30 or, you know, 30 years old, wow. but you know, I remember it. So yes, I, I have a good memory, but um, so I remember there was the sun, sun was setting on my right going in, over the bay and then above the ocean, the moon was rising and it was a full moon. And I remember riding my bike and these two things are on, on either side of me. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so weird. You know, like I'm on a planet, you know, and things are spinning around me. And I remember looking at how the, 
the sun was filling the stairway that went to a roof deck on this house with shadows and lines. And under the moon, the full moon, there was a thin strip of clouds. And I remember looking at how that line of clouds was mimicking these lines on the house. And I remember thinking to myself, that's it. That's what I want to do. Wow. So um, I, I've um, taken two of my licensing exams and I want to finish it. I just got sidetracked, you know, like 10 years ago when I um, was going to get my master's degree. Mm-hmm. But now I'm realizing I want to finish it. I want to like bring it all together because I mean, even architecture is about light. It's of all course. About light. It yeah, is all about, light. about like, Everything is. And I find that because I'm hyper-focused on one very um, minuscule thing in a way, it just keeps opening up the world to me. Mm-hmm. And but because I have that focus and my diverse, you know, education that I can kind of bridge the gaps between things. And, you know, there's certain points, like I'm working with scientists. So like, I know what I don't know and I know to go ask them, you know, and then the different fabricators and people who are making things for me, like, I know what I can't do and that's totally fine, but um, I'm, I'm really ready to like branch out. You know, I feel like, you know, at my age with all that I've accomplished with my patents and everything, you know, I'm ready. So in a way, you're ready to go back to architecture. I'm ready. Well, I would do architecture in a very picky way. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really want to sign and seal drawings. But, you know, if I had a beach house or a store or maybe something. I mean, I teach, too. So I'm a professor now as well. Um, I teach at New York Tech. I just feel like, you know, why limit myself in a way? You know, yes. like, I miss space. And I feel like my lighting can go, you know, be put into a huge architectural scale. And then with all my material developments and everything, I feel like just having my license will help me. Mm -hmm. You know, like I would always find architects to team up with. It's just credibility. Absolutely. Also, it's a lot of work. I think most people don't know how much work goes into being a licensed architect in addition to getting your degree from school. But is there a particular building or an architect's work that inspire you in the way you think about light? For example, phase two of Le Corbusier in the way he dealt with life in Ronchamp, right? I'm, I'm just making it up. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. You know, I studied furniture design in Denmark in the late 90s for a semester. And I remember they took us to a church. It was in um, Jutland, I guess that's how you pronounce it, Um, you know, the main part of Denmark. And it was so beautiful. You walk in and you see this light coming from the side of the altar and everything is really dark, but you look up and there were light bulbs that were all hanging from a ceiling that was inverted. Mm Mm-hmm. But all the light bulbs were level and just single bulbs hanging from the ceiling, tons of them. And then you go to the front, you know, you can kind of look out the window from the side and then you turn around and all the pews are like an electric blue. I have to find, I have it, I have it somewhere in my files where I went, but oh my God, that was such a beautiful church. I mean, the simplicity and the sophistication and it, you know, looked down into a fjord Mm -hmm. and 
wouldn't wouldn't it be nice to actually apply all these principles in some sort of more secular and practical architecture? Because I'm thinking the examples that I have in mind and the one that you just mentioned all have to do with special programming. So it's a church or it's a public building and we need to really think about the lighting because there is a message that we want to communicate. And yet this original example that you mentioned of you as a young girl on your bike uh, on Long Beach, New Jersey, looking at the world around you and, and capturing light through your eyes on the surfaces of people's houses. This is something very uh, accessible to everybody. Very Not everyone can grasp the, the meaning of all this, right? Not, not everybody pays attention to these phenomena. But don't you think that it's time for architects to also start paying attention to how our domestic architecture needs to be redesigned and re-examined to, to bring that sort of optimism and happiness and spirituality in our life. Definitely. I think busy street here. A lot of crime in Brooklyn. No, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, would, I would think that there's, because there's something sort of otherworldly about this light, it sort of is meditative in a way where mm -hmm. you're forced to be, you're forced to interact with it in a way because it literally looks like you can walk up and touch it, but it doesn't exist. And I find that, right, I had a theory when I was um, working on my thesis in grad school that say for like shopping, like there's something about shopping where it's like you're combing the beach for seashells or something. Mm -hmm. you know? So in a way, and, and then when you find something like you're in the moment with it, but I think that maybe there's a way to create presence with people. So like, for instance, in my patent, I have one of my applications is for like touchless buttons and keyboards and things. So where it could be like, you know, bubbles of light that you sort of interfere with somehow, but you have to be there with it. And, you know, turn switches on and off or something. I think maybe even like with lighting design where in, in an energy efficient way, it could even could be where you don't have to light an entire space, you can just light surfaces to be able to see. So I took a lighting design class at Parsons a few years ago, and they took us to Grand Central mm -hmm. with light meters. And in the middle of Grand, Grand Central, where the clock is, it's only two foot candles. And the reason you can see is because they're just lighting the walls. They're washing the walls with daylight. Yes. So, I mean, I would imagine that if you have like surfaces or things like I have a, I can show you, I have a, a light painting above my fireplace here um, with bubbles of light. And I just use that. Like hmm. I, I don't turn on a lot of lights. I have that on all the time and um, it's enough light. You know, if I want to read, I have a, um, like a, a task lamp, but you know, for just, you know, moving around the space, I'm, you know, I think it's like what, 15 Watts you know, the whole thing, but it is yeah. big. It takes up a lot of space, but you know, it's functional that way. And then it's fun too. Isn't that so, interesting? In essence, your poetry, because it was a little bit of the poetry that led you into this direction of scientific research has actually allowed you to land on a solution that is sustainable much more than what established corporations do in order to reinvent light 
even with LED light, right? It's it's uh, it's not necessarily sustainable. So I find that fascinating that some sort of more intuitive, creative, poetic path has led the architect into a solution that is in effect very practical, very sustainable, very much futuristic. And today, when all the conversations have to do with the metaverse, I think it is much more exciting to think of the world through your own eyes, at least the work that I have seen, because it is it is this, as you said, an illusion. Sometimes you feel that you can touch something, but but it doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah, it's not there, but it looks like you can touch it. You can touch it's like it. something in between, you know, it's, it's immaterial. Um, it's something in between like a gas and like a solid. Uh, it took you, it took you about 10 years to get the patent. No, I no. had filed, I filed in 2012. I ended up refiling, but with different claims, actually way more claims yes. in 2020. And I got it in five months. Okay. One thing was the patent. What other challenges have you encountered as your mission, I believe, is to teach us how to look at light differently, both as a creative medium, but also as a practical solution? Well, I think because these materials and this effect, which is basically optical physics, um, it creates an illusion and it makes people naturally curious because you want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the products, like some of the products that I want to make or license out or whatever are things like I can literally like mix color in space. So if I have, you know, cyan, magenta and yellow, I'm making white light in the middle and Mm -hmm. then I'm making orange, green and um, what's the other one? Um, Orange, green and violet um, out in space. So it's like this sort of like what's really happening here. It causes people to be like curious, like in the moment, like I said, and it's also like something that you can play with and interact with. I think I've shown it to kids and they like freak out. So um, I feel like I'm just beginning. Like I think getting my patents sort of, you know, gave me the green light to just go for it. And now, you know, I want to develop things on my own and then license things. Um, This is, this is unique. There is nobody else who works with light the way you work with light. And actually part of your question, part of your answer applies to this because you just spoke about painting in space. That's what you do. Yes. So yeah, I really want to make a lot of fine art too. I'm definitely, I just want to do what I do, you know, like, I don't care what you call it. I just want to do my work. Um, Actually, I just met my electrical engineer and he's helping me with this new lighting, but he knows things that I don't know at all. And mm. it's great to team up with people, but I'll be able to make huge walls of things because of this meeting I had yesterday where, you know, I can have rods of glass, like thin pieces of glass coming back out, you know, through a surface and then back out creating bubbles of light with just one little source. Mm. You know, it's just like things I don't even think about. Yeah. And I feel like there's, there's just so much that I haven't, a lot of it has been me just developing things and getting the right people to help me warding off the wrong people. Yes. That's also oh important. People yeah. don't realize how hard it is. Like I've had two, two people wanting to invest in me and then I'm glad I didn't take them up on it because it would have been bad. 
And I have like really good lawyers and good advisors now. And I have, I have some things that I'm going to be doing soon. So um, which will basically self-fund all of my everything so that I'm not beholden to anyone. A lot of it also is just um, having a focus too. So it's like, even as I, as I branch out, I'm continuously having to refocus myself mm-hmm. because I just keep seeing more and more and more, you know, of things that I can do with this. <laughs> I, I think you personify, you know, a lot of people use the term creative practitioner and you're it <laughs> because you are using parts of all these different disciplines, including electrical engineering, even though you're not one yourself. But as you learn from the different disciplines, you're putting everything together and you create innovation, you innovate. Yes. And I think part of coming from architecture is um, architecture is very humbling because I don't know how to hang drywall. You know, I don't know how to lay a brick. You know, what do I really know about HVAC systems and like all these things? Like you have to constantly be talking to other people Mm -hmm. to make things happen. So I think architecture gave me that and then also patience. And I think maybe a little bit too much of that um, because I was always told that careers don't even get started until you're in your 40s and 50s as an architect. So just be patient, keep learning. So now here I am, but I think industrial design and fine art, it's all like, you know, you have to hit the ground running and, you know, push, 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 get your stuff out there. But I've always been a little bit more patient and just letting things unfold. Yes. Taking the long Yeah, uh, I'm view. definitely yeah, taking the long view. Yeah. Um, like, like for instance, like I love teaching. Like I don't ever want to not teach. Yes. I'll teach until I can't teach. You know, I don't only want to teach, but it's, I started it last year and I realized just how much I love it. I love students. It's so mm-hmm. fun to figure out who they are. And I'm, was, I'm very appreciative, appreciative of all of the professors that helped me with that you know, where they allowed me to be myself. What do you, you know? teach? Um, I teach in at New York Tech. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach in the architecture and interior design department. So I'm teaching like um, furniture. It's like one class where it's like furniture, millwork and materials. Uh-huh. And then another one is um, lighting design. So it would be like lighting a space and um, light fixtures and that sort of thing. Um, Interesting. Very different one from the other, because one is very down to earth, practical, putting things together. And lighting design is, again, this this uh, combination of of the theatrics of the space that each person envisions. And then how do you actually make it happen in real life? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just going to keep letting things unfold. From New York City, the city of ambition, aspiration, and desire, this is Populax with Thomae Serdari. Populax is the place where we bring attention to objects of personal luxury, objects of desire, objects that have shaped our experience. Populax is a series of stories of desire recounted around one object at a time.